So rather than rushing into a second or third, I would, I would just maintain that focus on the first and then just take all those learnings and then apply it to the second and third store. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. In today's episode, we're bringing you a feature-length interview with Nick Stone, CEO and founder of Bluestone Lane, an Australian-inspired boutique hospitality chain with 62 locations in major cities across the US. Nick was actually our very first guest on this podcast back in September 2020, and with all that the industry has faced over the last two and a half years, from COVID to staff shortages to an energy crisis and soaring inflation, we thought now was the right time to get Nick back onto the show and learn how he and his team have been navigating all these unprecedented challenges. In this fascinating conversation, Nick shares his extraordinary insight, key business learnings, and wisdom gained from his multifaceted career. We also discussed the importance of developing a distinct and well-communicated value proposition and how human connection and community are central to the essence of Bluestone Lane. Welcome to Fifth Wave, Nick. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be on. Great to hear from you. You know, we've had you on the podcast before, and I'd love to sort of um, now to make this a kind of an all-inclusive story of the entrepreneur and the learnings that you've experienced in this um, Bluestone Lane journey. Uh, I wonder if you just give us a little bit of background on Bluestone now for the audience and our audience has grown. So many of them may not have had a chance to listen to your story. So um, where are you now and where did it all begin? Well, it's quite a colorful journey, but uh, uh, Bluestone Lane is a premium Australian cafe and, and coffee company that was founded in New York City in mid-2013. We currently have about 62 locations, I think, to be, to be exact, across eight markets, only in the US. So we're in on both coasts, so the Northeast, New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Washington, D.C. We're also in on the West Coast in Northern California and San Francisco, the Bay Area. We're in Los Angeles and Orange County, and we've opened two stores in Houston, Texas. Uh, we also uh, launched into Toronto in 2019, um, neither store, unfortunately, made it through one year uh, before sort of COVID hit, and unfortunately, we had to streamline the business and rationalise. Uh, but um, you know, we've been very focused on providing an authentic uh, Australian quintessential coffee experience where the barista knows your name, face, and order. That you have that recognition, premium quality coffee, healthy food, primarily made to order, and. Ultimately, Bluestone was created out of self-necessity. I moved to the US in 2010 and I missed the daily ritual we had twice a day going to our local cafe. And as you would know, in Australia, you don't, you're not really a customer, you're a local where the proprietor knows you and you've probably got that reciprocal relationship with the, with the owner. And I think what's a little bit interesting in my journey is I never worked a day in hospitality. I never worked a day in coffee prior to founding Bluestone Lane. So I was very much an outsider. And I, d- I delved into the world of coffee and tried to educate myself as best as possible and, and uh, came up with the, the concept and, and with a lot of help from my wife, Alexandra, as well. And it launched, uh, it launched nine years ago. And we've been, I guess, forebearers in, in the premium coffee movement in the US and you know, particularly introducing healthier food also. Um, the avocado sp- smash is quite ubiquitous now in New York, but back in 2013, no one had ever heard of it. So here we are now. Right. Now, your background, sports and banking. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I've had three careers to date. Um, the first was I was a professional Australian rules footballer. So I was drafted in my final year of high school back in late 1999. I was 17, just about to turn 18, and I was in the system for six years, two years at three clubs, so quite a journeyman. And uh, luckily, I went to university at the same time. And in, in Australian professional sports, you're primarily you're, you're drafted out of high school. You don't go through a college system. But uh, the AFL and, and all the clubs I were at were very supportive of my education and uh, finished my degree over that six years part-time. 
and went straight into uh, investment banking. So I had an opportunity uh, to to join to start it as an intern, and then it progressed uh, into finance, where I was able to work uh, in Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, and then also in the UK, and then and finally um, overseeing corporate finance for an Australian bank in New York City, which was an incredible thrill. And that was in 2011. And uh, yeah, I had this idea when I came across in 2010, I was studying as part of my MBA in New York. I was I was just perplexed um, that the coffee culture was so different, but I was inspired by the success of of Starbucks. Like in Australia, for example, I think we got quite a myopic opinion on the big chains. The largest chain really is McCafe, which McCafe started in Melbourne. And, um, you know, I think we've got quite a uh, dour view on Starbucks and Duncan and some of these other Costa Coffee, some of these other mass chains that have been so successful in the Northern Hemisphere. And I just couldn't believe when I got to New York that Starbucks at that stage, I think its market capitalization was around, you know, $85, $90 billion. I just nearly fell off my chair. And, uh, you know, from then I just realized that there was this, this, this movement from younger, younger consumers towards more artisanal products, more craft. It was happening in adjacent industries and, and it was, and capital was being deployed in the coffee space. And I just thought that there might be an amazing opportunity here to, to launch a couple of small stores. And, uh, you know, worst case scenario, I'll, I'll have great coffee around the corner from my office on Park Avenue. And it just sort of accelerated from there. So thinking about where you've come from and from the time you set up the business, you've obviously faced quite a few challenges. What have you learned along the way? Well, getting to actually launching the first coffee shop in mid-2013, it was in midtown Manhattan, uh, 805 Third Avenue, subterranean basement, not in a Class A building, no street visibility, no signage. The only way you'd find it is through word of mouth. And uh, the rent was nothing. I think it was $1,200 a month. Um, so it was, a, it was a very sort of gentle way to, to dip your toe in. But you know, prior to getting to that point, uh, I, as I said, I had to become a student of the industry. So I was very, very fortunate that I knew some people that worked in, worked in hospitality. I, I didn't know a lot. I probably knew a couple. And then my brother-in-law uh, had a bit of an obsession with coffee and uh, he educated me a lot about the varietals and flavor profiles and the different ways to prepare different beverages. And he was very, very insightful. But, um, you know, I, I had this opportunity when I was studying in 2010 in New York to work on a project. And uh, was, I was doing an executive education um, course as part of my MBA. And, and I was given the freedom to work on something. And I decided I was going to do something in technology. And that stage, Groupon and some of these flash sites were, so, were all the rage. And I, I sort of had an idea about that, like a marketplace business. But then I thought, well, why don't we just do coffee? Like the addressable market's so big. It seems like a pretty pretty good annuity business. There's great gross profit margin in coffee. And ultimately, I, I just knew the coffee culture in Australia and, and that Australian cafes are known for would be embraced in the US. Um, I certainly knew it would be embraced in New York City in, in pockets. So and then, you know, I, I just, it was through, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I'm just a student. I, I'm a student of life. I love learning. I love reading. I love talking to people and hearing about their stories. And I'm not afraid, to, I guess, to go and network and just introduce myself or ask someone to introduce me to someone who, who's, I find inspiring. And I, that, I love that about life. I love hearing about people's journeys. It doesn't have to be, you know, commercial venture or overly successful, just things that people are passionate about. And there was a lot of people really passionate about coffee. And there was a lot of consumers that, that really, really were passionate about great quality coffee that they'd found in some of, you know, in Europe or found in Australia or New Zealand or what have you. So, um, you know, that's how I, I the, the idea and framing it, it took a couple of years um, based off that project. And it was just constantly you know, challenging the value proposition and spending time to build out the business plan. And, and I, I just got to the point where I felt really comfortable with, the, well, with how we were going to compete, um, our value proposition and how we were going to manage the risks. And, uh, you know, that was building to the point where we actually launched. And then, and then from there, it's, it's, 
it's just been um, the most extraordinary, enriching, enriching experience. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of challenge with it. It's extremely, it's extremely volatile. But, um, you know, you've got to see it for the positives and the positives are you have a, such a privileged position to change the way someone feels every, every time they walk into one of your establishments. And now we, we have that opportunity for over, you know, 75,000 people a week, which is, which is wonderful. And now the focus is certainly reaching more locals and developing more of our team and promoting them through the system so that they get their professional development, they get that uh, financial rewards and a step in their life. So it's, it's, a, it's such a fortunate position to be in as a founder and CEO. It's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure, given some of the macro challenges we've had with COVID and uh, now we're facing you know, record inflation and potentially a recession. But um, you know, it's enormously rewarding if you can focus on the positives and assume good intent. And uh, that's what I try to do the best of my ability. But some days I do it better than others, but that's what I try. So that moment when COVID hit, tell us about what happened in your business and how you came out of it. So it was the second week of March where we where we made the call, uh, but we'd seen, we made the call to really dramatically cease operations. Uh, but prior to that, I guess we'd seen some signals. We'd had a very strong February, so we were very optimistic. And then it sort of, the first week of March got really wobbly and the noise out of China got more serious because I think, you know, in the States there was a bit of a naivety that that this problem was isolated to China and wasn't necessarily going to act as the this massive contagion into the US. But fortunately, a couple of our board members advised me that th- this thing's quite real and we need to prepare for the worst. So we started working on phases and how we'd manage the cost structure in the business if things uh, really spiralled out of control, which they ended up doing. Um, and we had four phases and we elected around, I think it was around March the 10th to implement phase one, but within sort of three days, we'd gone to a phase five. And we at that stage, we had 51 stores and we had a very precarious footprint because our stores were primarily urban, in urban financial districts. We were in the bottom of a lot of office towers where, where, you know, an amenity to the building. And of course, those were the types of real estate that were most dramatically impacted when COVID came to the US and, and spread like wildfire. So in New York City, for example, you know, we went from trucking along strongly in February to 85% down within a couple of weeks. So we made the decision to reduce um, the store fleet temporarily down from 51 to 14. We closed 10 stores permanently. We exited out of Canada. We, um, we did whatever we could to, to salvage the business and, to, and just to stabilize uh, where we could sort of find out where the bottom is and how our teams, how they're, how they're you know, personally managing the, the COVID pandemic because there was just so much uncertainty from a health perspective, both physically and mentally, people's welfare and livelihoods. It was just a tre- tremendously traumatic period, but we were, we were very decisive and clear and we made decisions early on um, to stabilise the business. And what that meant was, we yes, we had to, suspend operations at the vast majority of our stores. We kept stores that we felt could operate. Um, at that stage, all of our markets were prohibiting dining inside and outside. So it only could be takeaway window. It was obviously in March, which was extremely cold in the Northeast, where the majority of our stores are. And uh, so we, we, we kept the 14 stores open for sort of three clear reasons. One, to preserve as many jobs as we could. Two, to give hope to our neighbourhoods and communities that there is still a place where you can leave your apartment once a day and get a coffee and have a sense of community and welfare and human connection, which is truly the North Star of Bluestone Lane to be a human connection company. And then thirdly, it was really to be about a, a refuge for healthcare heroes because even though all of us were forbidden to go outside and to socialise, we were reliant on our uh, nurses and doctors and uh, paramedics and 
five departments, police departments, to, to keep the critical infrastructure of cities going. So we wanted to be a refuge for them and we ended up um, having a huge, tremendous campaign um, called Fuel for Fuel for Healthcare Heroes and um, and it, we gave away tens of thousands of coffees and it was an incredible thing for all of us and inspiring for the team. And, you know, I learned so much but, you know, I saw that I saw such inspirational positivity from our team the courage the sacrifices to go to to go to uh, to work when there wasn't a vaccine when there was all of this you know concern about their own health and they would still front up to work and that was just absolutely extraordinary it was a complete lean in and it actually had a lot of clarity for decision making because instead of you know vacillating or being inconsistent um we just agreed it was quite binary, this is what we're going to do. And even if, you know, there was a disagreement, it would be disagree and commit. And it was a way in which we made some huge decisions around how we were going to serve, what we were going to stand for. And it, it seriously paid off for us in just providing that clarity. Maybe not financially, but, you know, certainly it gave it gave us that sinew and proved the resilience of the brand and our team and ultimately um, has, you know, the the inelasticity of our locals, which is which has underpinned our resurgence and rebound back over the last twelve months. Yeah. Now, there would have been a lot of pressure on you personally because ultimately you're responsible for all those decisions. Ultimately, how did you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing that I'd experienced in my professional career that that quite equips you with a pandemic. But you know, I've had I've had uh, obviously some great ups and then I've had a lot of downs. You know, when my being an Australian rules footballer was my childhood hero and I, I, I made it and then, you know, I was effectively retrenched three times in six years. So my career was finished by 23 and that's, that's a, it's a really hard thing to deal with, particularly, you know, it's in the paper and everybody knows and I'm glad that it was before the social media resol- mm. um, revolution because... Mm. But, you know, it just equips you to, to mature very, very quickly. When you go from school and suddenly into a professional sporting, high-performance organisation, uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself and you have to grow up very quickly because your parents aren't there to protect you at training or, mm. or you know, you've got to d- delve from within. And so I had that and then moving to banking, like we'd been through the financial crisis. So I dealt with, um, and I was fortunate, I'd worked in businesses that looked at a lot of risk management, a lot of um, debt restructuring and debt advisory. So I think some of those skills came to the fore. I had that financial acumen to precisely understand like what's going on with the cash flow. How do I get the operating leverage out of the business and manage my fixed costs? And then you know, I just, I just sort of tactically thought, okay, I've got to assume probably more control. Uh, it's got to become more centralized and, and uh, you know, it's it's going to be a, a little bit more, uh, less autonomy to the team. And, and that was the decision I made. And I think it gave everyone a lot of clarity and people then knew what to do. And we'd obviously made dramatic cuts to our, uh, what we call BL support, our corporate team. You know, we'd mm. You know, they would probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 50% or 60% of the corporate team were, were made, um, unfortunately, redundant. And then we're able to hire the vast majority back. Uh, but in that period, you know, we just had to do whatever we could to control the costs. And, um, you know, we did it in the right way, severance and, and paid everyone's benefits. And then we moved everyone on unemployment. So most of our team um, were okay financially, very fortunately. But... Um, you know, you, you just, it's one of those things that you, you need to, you need to have, you need to stay positive. You need to focus on what you can control and you need to be really, really clear with your communication. So we went to communication overdrive. Instead of having a weekly call, we would have calls three times a week. We'd also have emails and, and messaging through the team, just encouraging them, being a um, an open book for for their concerns, um, ensuring that we have professionals available to to coach them, and just just show that vulnerability that you don't have all the answers, but we're focused on what we can control. We're assuming good intent. We're staying positive, 
And uh, we're very, very clear on why we're operating, our purpose, and ulti- and just behave with, you know, and operate with, with the highest degree of integrity. And that's what we've always prided ourselves on. And I think those values came to the fore. And it was, it was just, you know, it was an amazing period in many respects. I think as a leader, as a CEO, going, getting, managing a business through COVID, or let's just say the last three years, because 2022 has also been very challenging because you had Omicron at the start in January, February, then you had the mass resurgence, then you had, um, you know, inflation that the world hasn't seen for 40, 50 years and, um, and just an extraordinarily tight unemployment market. So the last three years, I would say in a CEO's sort of lifetime, it's probably equivalent of 10 to 15 years because the amount of stress and challenge and, and certainly for two years, like we're on the edge, you know, we're, we're watching cash every single week to make sure we get through. And, and uh, you know, that steals you with a lot of not only focus, but yeah, you, you have to have that resilience. You have to have that uh, tenacity to keep pushing forward while still maintaining that positivity. And, and that's, that's can be really hard because if, if and uh, there was a terrific, I had a great conversation with uh, Paul Ruse, who's quite a revered coach and former um, uh, premiership winning coach in the AFL for a team called the Sydney Swans. And he was an amazing player. And, you know, he, he just talked about that you know, coaches, you know, through their body language, they could finish someone's career. Like they could look at them the wrong way or say something in the heat of the moment and the player loses all their confidence and they never perform at that level again, or they might end up out of the system. And that's something that, that uh, you know, that, no one talks to you about when you become CEO that the power and the influence you have that just any facial expression or the way that you articulate something could change someone's perception about how that their self-concept, their self-confidence could bring out insecurities or it could take them to the next level and work as an amazing catalyst to liberate growth and belief. So you you got to keep checking yourself. I was really lucky. I had an amazing support network. Um my family, my best friends back in Australia. And ultimately, I had amazing support from the team and the executive team. And instead of second guessing or, or having any doubts, they just marched on and we were so galvanized and, and congruent. It was, it, it was truly inspiring. So, yeah, oh. it was, it's, it's hard to explain, um, but I'm sure a lot of CEOs talked about the, uh, you know, the pressure. But if you made it through... Um, I have I have so much confidence now when we've, we're dealing with other challenges. Hey, like we made it through COVID, but we're going to find a way here. We'll just keep iterating until we find the path. So one of the solutions that you implemented, I, I believe, was um, a lot more tech into your business. What role did tech play in the evolution of your business post-COVID? Technology, from a ordering perspective and engagement with our locals, COVID was the catalyst that we needed. It was, and that's one of the thing. When things can't, if, if you feel that things can't get any worse, you're at rock bottom. It's actually an extraordinary, liberating experience to know that you can literally try anything, throw caution to the wind, with reckless abandon, and it you might find a nugget of gold. And with us, we were we were faced with this conundrum that we couldn't serve people that in our cafes, we couldn't serve people that were sitting outside, we, we had to focus on takeaway. We had to focus on delivery. We had to do it in a very labor-efficient way because we couldn't have a lot of our team in the store because we were also managing risks of, of COVID spreading amongst our team and we were, we were in isolating people and we'd all remember that you know, some, if you had an exposure, you were put in you have quarantine um, in a very sort of conservative way and it, you just had to be very, very um, mindful of, of what can, all the risks and just trying to keep that business continuity. And for us, uh, Liam, who headed up digital, he'd been working away on, on a solution in which you could order exclusively from your phone but also paired with you know, in-store QR codes and having it all go through one single loyalty repository and one database. And we had a loyalty program which was effectively scanning a barcode on checkout. We only offered it in our coffee shops, which is uh, more of our smaller format takeaway 
proposition. Not uh, cafes is our larger proposition, which is more like a dine-in um, and services a lot more delivery. So what we ended up doing is we we built this app, a custom app, which essentially bridged different technology platforms we'd introduced and um, and it was simply extraordinary how it was embraced and it was a credit to the team, particularly you know the retail team and how they communicated it and introduced it and, and educated our locals around how to use it. So from that period from March 2020 till the end of 2021, we were running at about 90% digital transactions. Uh, it was about 92% actually. So that include, included uh, delivery, which was something that, that didn't exist in our business. And we offered not only sort of obviously integrations with third party, but we offered native delivery where you ordered directly from the app um, and you would still accumulate loyalty and you would have all of that order and transactional history in your, in your app. And really that was it, it, speaking to some very senior um, tech leaders, including Noah, uh, good art from Ola, Olo, who he's the you know, founder CEO. No one had offered a app or a, a loyalty database that had you know dining in, order ahead, takeaway, uh, native delivery, uh, and e-commerce all through one single app and loyalty program and data repository. So for us, like that was just extraordinary because of the insights that we gained, the labor productivity, um, the convenience that it offered to our locals. So it was it was simply extraordinary. And uh, we then made a lot of tech investments across the operational side. So that's very much focused, you know, the app is focused on obviously payment channels and engagement with the with our locals. Then we focused a lot on the operational side and introducing more technology and and uh, you know, it 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 really was a great great catalyst. We probably w- would have taken years to get to the situation where we made such a bold call to to lean with with um, digital ordering as the overwhelming primary channel. But again, like when things uh, when you you never want to waste a crisis, and for us, like that crisis was okay. We've got to survive. We know our purpose, and here's a chance to introduce something that we'd been. They've been bubbling away, and let's just orientate the entire organization to get behind it. And there's no ifs and buts. We are all doing this. You know, get on the bus, or you know, disagree and commit if you must. And then um, we just uh, forged ahead. And we've now seen that digital transactions in our business are still running at about sixty-five percent. We have introduced uh, paper menus back into all of our cafes, and and we prioritize hospitality no matter what. So if one of our locals wants to order with our service professionals, that's perfectly fine. But if they do prefer to order via their phone or via a you know a QR code um, as a guest checkout, that's fine too. So we love that optionality. It's a bit more complex with the steps of service, but I do believe that it's the future and um, you know, when it, when we get it right, it's fantastic. And when you get it wrong, you know, it's not. It can can be clunky. There's no denying that. But I don't believe that we're going back to the way where it was just purely a you know a, a paper pad and pen. I I do think that it's it's going to be this augmentation of the service proposition with technology, and it's not going to be a substitute of human of service or human connection. I do not believe in that. It's just be, going to be an augmentation of the service proposition. Great. Now, all very well for someone that's run a chain of, you know, at the time you had 40 and shrunk down, but we're planning on building back. What advice would you give to a smaller coffee operator in terms of the technology that they put in their businesses? I think it's a very good point. But ultimately, if you're you're quite small, I, I would certainly be still focused on that human connection piece. I wouldn't just rush out and, and, uh, sign up a lot of technology in principle. I think that you want to build your value proposition through amazing service, through word of mouth. And then as you get larger and if if people are looking for alternative channels to order, the most obvious one would be to order ahead. Then I would be looking at an off-the-shelf solution. I I certainly do not believe in, and and I've counseled a lot of brands in spending money on developing their own proprietary tech or or spending a lot of money on technology and technology professionals early on. I, I don't think that the rewards are there for 
in hospitality, I think that there's a lot of partners out there that are solely focused uh, on technology and they have the expertise, they have the engineers and it's just a lot more cost effective and honestly, the the rate of investment and the um, innovation that's happening in the space, like a, a small hospitality company is never going to be able to keep up with someone who's specialised and, and cap, well capitalised and has that expertise. So I would be looking for an off-the-shelf solution mm. that can that can be embraced. And there are, there's an unbelievable amount. I think it's only when you get to a certain level where you can justify having an app because that's the biggest conundrum everyone's faced with, that even if you develop an app, how do you get that, that share of screen? How do you encourage a customer to actually use your app rather than a super app uh, or an aggregator? Because there's only so much space on someone's iPhone screen and you know, by page four, they're not really looking at it. So it's worked very, very you know, successfully for a Starbucks, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. But for Bluestone, I, I do think it, you know, we needed at least 50 stores for the mm-hmm. app to, to be embraced. Mm-hmm. If, if we were only 10, I think people would just be looking to use sort of um, marketplace solutions because we just couldn't get that focus uh, on someone's iPhone or or, um, or Google phone or whatever, uh, Android. And I just, uh, you know, for us, like it was just the right timing because we had 50 stores. And when the pandemic hit, we were one of the only specialty coffee brands that had scale that kept our doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of you, you, you would have learned about a lot of read about a lot of stories of the bigger a lot of the bigger guys remaining closed for six months or a year where where we persisted, and um, yeah, I think that meant that a lot of people got very familiar with our app and you know we used that to our advantage. But you know that would be my counsel, yeah, to to look at the off the rack solutions with point of sale providers and and some of these other sort of. Aggregators and there's a lot out there. There's a lot of received funding, so that that would be that would be my advice until they at least get to 40, 50 locations. Then you have to have a runway into a hundred stores, I think, to really justify the spend. Right. Obviously, with your finance background, what 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 sort of advice would you give to a fledgling coffee operator in terms of financial disciplines that you must have in your business? Well, I think I think it's a really it's an interesting question because we're now in a very different macro environment from what we were pre-COVID uh, and then you know, during COVID. So now there's a lot of headwinds, um, as we know. The UK just had an inflation print of, of over eleven percent uh, last week, and and a lot of the Western economies, a lot of the world economies, are staring you know at a at a recession. How deep and how prolonged? Who knows? But certainly the economic environment has deteriorated because they are trying to effectively suck out this excess liquidity that's been driving inflation. Um, So I I think the most important thing with starting any venture is just to be so sure that this is what you want to do and that you've done the requisite amount of study and you've challenged your value proposition. I don't believe there's any benefits of rushing in I think it's about finding the right location, the right concept, having the right plan, and then having that financial discipline to say, no, I can't afford that rent, or yes, I can, but I can't afford that build out, and and sticking to the process. Mm. Um, There's nothing worse than opening a store when you're over budget and you're already panicked that it has to do well because your payback or your cash flow is going to be impaired unless it starts really going. It can be a really stressful really stressful moment and a lot of young entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs aren't equipped with that um, experience yet. They, they don't have that. They don't have that um, experience. Yeah, they, they just, they're still early in their entrepreneurial sort of life cycle. So for me, for me it would be um, maintain that financial discipline and having done the work and, and having a plan and just confidence that, they know that this is how we're going to compete, and it's going to be it's it's got a very good chance of probability of success. And then, as they when they open the first store, I would just put everything you've got into that heart, mind, soul to, to invest in your team and to invest in your customers. And that customer centricity, that obsession with 
how they feel about your brand or your your proprietor proprietorship is just so critical to then and to even give you the fortune to consider open a second location. And I, I find that with entrepreneurs that they, they've already got the second and third lined up when they haven't probably nailed the first yet. They might have some early stage momentum, but they haven't got through one, two, three years where it's it's achieved the average unit volume goal they had, achieved the four-wall EBITDA profitability metrics they had, that it's built a succession plan where there is talent within the organization that can run that uh, that we can run that store uh, or cafe or restaurant with a lot of autonomy to then afford you the luxury of focusing on others. Mm. So rather than rushing into a second or third, I would, I would just maintain maintain that focus on the first and then just take all those learnings and then apply it to the second and third store. And, um, and you know, again, like I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that they have one cafe and they, they get – probably more utility, more enjoyment, and maybe, honestly, more financial rewards from just running one cafe than mm. spreading themselves across two. It's a completely different mentality. And ultimately, if you're going to go down the pathway of multi-venues, you're going to have to change your skill set so dramatically from being that owner-operator, living in the store, being that conductor, the face of the organization, to really you're going to have to be a, a manager and a manager of of not just retail but a corporate team, which is a different skill set and you're going to be managing a broader number of you know, responsibilities and requirements that comes with scale. And uh, for myself, um, you mentioned it earlier, I didn't leave banking until mid-2016. So Bluestone already had 12 locations and uh, you know, we were doing probably, you know, I don't know, $15, $20 million in turnover. So for me, I, I was always always quite conservative. I just thought that um, it's just prudent here for me to continue to remain in finance. Um, the business was learning and evolving. I was still a CEO, but it didn't it it didn't need me to be there the whole time. I actually don't think I'd be that productive when we were just early on because I'd come from a big, bigger system and and I probably just didn't have all the experience in how to manage a hospitality, you know, fast-growing business. But uh, when I did jump, I was really, really sure that I knew how I was going to add value. I knew how I was going to coach the team. I knew where the growth was going to come from and, and my role in acting as a custodian of that and leader of that. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that was the right call. And that's another thing, you know, I just encourage others just to just to there's nothing wrong with going slow and getting it right um you'll be afforded opportunities to go fast when you when you become an expert and you've and you've got success and you know, as they say you know um you know good you know success or good deals have many many fathers and mothers and and i, I wholeheartedly believe that like people will continue to support businesses that are performing well, that have the right value proposition. There'll always be capital and there will always be people that are inspired by entrepreneurs' journeys. And, uh, you know, in this market, it will provide an amazing opportunity. Similar to COVID, I remember in, in late 2000, you know, 2020, 2021, just these unbelievable real estate deals and opportunities to get people on board. And I think the same thing will happen next year. But uh, you just need that discipline and you just need to be really sure on your value proposition and your plan. Just finally, you talked about um, systems you know, and you're, you seem to be quite quantitative uh, person as well as very personable as well. What metrics do you look at you know, in a daily basis? You know, do you have like a cockpit where you're kind of looking at you know, store results, et cetera? What, 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 are the, what are the numbers that you focus on when it comes to trading? We send out a daily report on primarily on all of our stores, their sales, their transactions, their average spend. And then it will have the last four weeks, it will have the same week or the same day last year, and it will have the same week and the same day in 2019. So that comes out as an automated um, report for every single store. Then we have uh, a weekly dashboard that always aggregates all of our customer reviews, Google, Yelp, and we have an internal system called Tattle, which receives the overwhelmingly like large amount of reviews, thousands of reviews um, a month. And then, so then we're looking at labor. We look at labor and we look at labor as a dashboard each week. 
So that will be also benchmarking against prior years. So you'll be able to see where it was this time, uh, this week, uh, last year, the, the year prior, the year prior to that. So you sort of have six years where you can compare. It'll show not only sort of your outputs being your labor efficiency, but it'll also show your labor productivity. It'll show your total hours, average, um, average wage paid per labor hour. It'll show overtime. It'll show um, everything you kind of need with labor and yeah. it'll have all the benchmarking versus all of the other stores in different cohorts, different geographies. We have a lot of reporting. We have well, tips. We, we look at all the tips across the business and we look at, okay, how does that align to consumer sentiment? Are stores with greater tip percentage? Is it because, you know, the sales velocity is there? Is it because, you know, the reviews are there? We, we do a lot of correlation analysis. But, um, you know, I think that right now in this market, like a lot of businesses uh, in hospitality are finding that their, ch- their average transaction, their average check is remaining quite resilient. It's robust. But the challenge is on the transaction side. So for us, like that is what we're we're focused on. How do we drive more transactions? That will be the biggest challenge going into a recession. Our spend is remaining, um, as I said, um, robust. So uh, we are, are tracking that, and we track it uh, weekly against budget. And uh, you know, we spend a, spend a lot of time focused on average unit volume. That is our biggest. Um, area for scope for improvement. We have a strong prime cost, which is uh, what you'd say is COGS plus labor. That That's often referred to as a prime cost uh, metric or a health ratio. That is very strong for us. Um, we're confident in our prime cost. We need more average unit volume. And uh, so then everything's orientated around that. And that's, and that's regarding marketing, sales initiative. It's about quality of leadership in the store. It's about training and coaching of that leadership. It's about recruitment and induction. So if you, if you can sort of work out like where are the big levers, what are the key success factors for each of your concept and then what levers are you going to pull to ensure that those key success factors can be executed to the best of the business's ability, you you do suddenly have more clarity than suddenly just numbers on a page and lots of red and green and ups and downs. And sometimes that just can be purely overwhelming, especially when you're looking at, in our case, 60 stores and and they're all on different sort of trajectories and, and, and different business plans. But generally, the theme of our business is to grow average unit volume. And um, then it's all about, okay, you know, what are the most critical levers to achieve that? And, and how do we how do we work together to get it done? And and just and that's why so much of our sales measurement on a daily basis uh, regards regards sales and transactions and average spend, and then benchmarking over a period of time that that gives everyone that. And you know, and ultimately about you know what we find in our business is what what's measured it gets done. And if it's not measured and if it's not spoken about and there's not sort of drop dead dates, then things can just drift. It's not that people don't care. It's just that it doesn't um, drive that level of urgency and focus that you might need. That happens uh, That happens when it is measured and talked about frequently. And uh, we've been much better. And that, and that I think that COVID instilled that discipline to really measure and hold people to account to certain, um, certain milestones. It, it's helped us go faster. Wonderful. So you've been through pretty much two crises in the last three years, really. Thinking about what Bluestone was before COVID, before the 2022 crisis that we're seeing now with inflation and all sorts of other headwinds, how has that impacted the Bluestone Lane business in terms of what products you have, what formats you're offering now? What's changed and what will be changed for some time to come? I think again, you mentioned value proposition. For us, we are big believers in human connection and bringing people together, and our stores being, you know, a catalyst to facilitate that interaction. And what we found at our cafes is ninety percent of dining transactions between our locals are, are between two locals or more. So. When we very rarely have someone that comes in, dines in by themselves, and and uh, you know we we welcome it, but predominantly it's people coming uh, with a with a friend or a family member or a colleague or or a bunch of mates that they um, they want to have a brunch or, or lunch and and connect, and we absolutely love that. And for us, like we're going to very much focus on being hospitality led, service led. 
and ensuring that we execute you know high quality premium coffee and and food we have not gone into drive throughs we have not gone into convenience and and fulfillment uh, we have small format stores that are still very fast but with all of our training uh, well the majority of our trainings are orientated around hospitality um, uh, and that is where we feel that the world is in massive deficit. And there's an incredible professor in the UK called Norina Hertz that uh, I heard was interviewed by a podcaster I listened to called uh, Scott Galloway, Prof G. Oh, yeah, yeah. And her analysis was that that this millennial generation are so in such a deficit of of human connection that the that the real pandemic we're dealing with is one of isolation and it's leading to extraordinarily negative mental health challenges and um, depression and self-harm. And uh, she said that almost like 20% of millennials in the UK are, can't, can't identify one person that's a real friend of their peer age. And, and for us, like we, that's just such a tragedy. We want to be a place where people come together. We, we want to be a community centre. So... Um, you know, in our formats, we're going to continue to be focus on where the use case best supplies. So, if it's in a financial district, you probably don't need a big cafe um, restaurant. People are quite time conscious; they want to come in, they want recognition, uh, they want to make sure that we're focused on speed, they want a quality product, and they want to make sure the store's clean. And but in cafes, which we predominantly put in residential areas, urban residential, we have now a few stores in suburban areas. As a as a consequence of our you know evolution, our life cycle, but but also COVID, um, people you know our locals are, are looking for a more expansive fair where they want real human connection and service. That they want a broader premium product. They want to be in a beautiful space. Uh, so for us, we just we just focus on the use case, and yep. then but we underpin it all by our definition of hospitality. And at Bluestone, we define hospitality as speed times experience. We, and everyone in the business knows that. They know the key success factors and they know that we're a human connection company. So overwhelmingly, we want to be focused on human connection. I'm a very big you know, proponent of that that should come first, making great coffee. Um, that can be taught. And if you have the right machinery, the right beans, the right procurement, the right roasting, um, there's a very good ch- the right milk, there's a very good chance that you can produce great coffee consistently at scale um, with the, with training. But you know, to train someone to be hospitable, to dedicate themselves in such a selfless way to make locals feel special every time, that, that's got to come from within. And um, that's why we spend so much time on, on our training and in induction and recruitment. And that is really your intellectual property. Most hospitality businesses really have limited IP. For us, it's got to be culture. That is the thing that enables you to scale and um, that's the thing where people say, yeah, every time I go to Bluestone, I feel great. Or every time I go to that restaurant, I feel great. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the feeling and that is driven by the culture of the organization. That's not just driven by, you know, a being product-led or, or buying certain things um, to make a space look a certain way. Wow. Thanks, Nick. That was extraordinary. So you've given a lot of incredible advice to, to our listeners here today. Just to close off here, what is the best piece of business advice that you've ever received? I think the best piece of business advice I've ever received is to, it's, it's never as good or as never as bad as you think it is. So at the, mo- at the time of the moment, you might think that it's an absolute just disaster, but the next day, it will be a new day. The sun will come up and you'll have a chance to, to improve and make amends and I think that that coupled with the fact that Reid Hoffman said a, a, a brilliant quote a few years ago uh, who was, Reid Hoffman was the founder of LinkedIn and he's been part of the PayPal, you know, mafia. Um, he said, you know, no one owns a good idea, executions everything. And I wholeheartedly believe that, that all of us every day have amazing ideas and my idea about just starting an Australian hole-in-the-wall coffee shop in midtown Manhattan was simply an idea. The reason why we were afforded the opportunity to grow and raise capital and scale is because we got the execution right and the execution was through our team and working with them, coaching with them and aligning with them. 
on making sure our locals feel special every time. So that would be a huge one that no one owns a good idea, execution is everything. And and um, I think that when it comes down to it, execution is what, what people remember and, and that is through training and repetition and planning. And uh, if you do all that, you give yourself a great chance to have a, have a great opportunity to grow and be successful and execute well. Right, Nick, thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Thanks, Jeffrey. Wow, what an incredible conversation with Nick Stone. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to The Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Link is in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's track in association with the Coffee Music Project is Beat the Blue by LA-based Netherlands artist Kia. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. Feeling like I just can't get with it today But they say, hey, the best things in life Come after the stormy days I